and welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is episode 40, in which we will be discussing two fascinating topics. The first one is organisation of books, alphabetic, alphabetical or thematic. And secondly, we are going to be comparing two books by the same author, who is E.H. Young, and those books are Miss Mole and Chatterton Square. So, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? Um, I'm good, thanks. Um, I want to put a quick caveat in as we start to say um, thanks again, Jenny, for coming on our last episode. Uh, a few people got in touch to say they found it hard to, to hear. Um, so apologies right. for that. I think it's all crowding around. One mic didn't work perhaps as well as it could have done. But <laughs> it's worth, you know, sitting in a, in a quiet room and turning the volume up. It was a fun episode. <laughs> um, yes, I, well, I'm just, just recovering from a cold because, you know, obviously yeah. I always have colds. But um, I am feeling all right, and I am currently reading The Letters Between Siegfried Sassoon and Max Beerbohm. Um, ah. Yeah. It's always, I always love it when two people that I'm independently interested in, um, I discover knew each other and wrote to each other. Um, yeah, I didn't know they were friends. Yeah, I think Siegfried was quite a lot younger than Max. Um, yeah. I'm not, quite, I'm not sure how they met, but... Um, and, and indeed, I'm not sure there are that many letters because the, whoever entered this has, <laughs> has had to bulk it out with diary entries kind of bit. But, um, but I always sort of assumed I wouldn't be interested in C. Preston because all I knew about him, other than he wrote war poetry, was that his a memoir was called Memoir of a Fox Hunting Man or something like that. And I thought, no, I don't, I don't want to read something about someone who actually <laughs> fox hunting. But then I read that book by Anna Thomason um, about um, Edith Olivier and Rex Whistler, in which he pops up quite a lot and seems so nice. I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll buy loads of his books and read none of them. So eventually I'm re- <laughs> re- reading this one. <laughs> um, well, I can highly recommend Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man. Is it good? It's excellent. And it's, there's not, I mean, it's not an awful lot about fox hunting in there, really. How much is there? Well, I mean, I can't remember off the top. I can't give you specifics. <laughs> Any <but> percentages. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough to offend, I can assure you. I did struggle with um, what was oh, I can't remember her name now. Uh, M. J. Farrell, is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I read Molly Keane. Molly Keane, that's right. Yeah, so I think I read the ones that was published as M. J. Farrell, um, one of her early ones that was mostly about hunting, and found that quite dispiriting to read. But, uh-uh. Um, I don't like, know. Well, if if you don't want to do that, just skip straight to the second one, Memoirs of an Infantry Officer. I think it's called. It's much better. <laughs> Actually, I can go from fox hunting to yeah, to soldiering. slaughter of foxes to slaughter of people. Hooray! At least oh, I don't know. Um, the other book, that one of the books I just read that I found really interesting. Have you have you read any um, Bridget Brophy? I've never heard of Bridget Brophy. Enlighten me. Well, I was at this excellent conference um, the other day, which was the theme was undervalued British women writers, nineteen thirty to nineteen sixty. Sounds like just a cup of tea. Exactly, in terms of heaven. <laughs> um, I have to give a quick shout out to Vanessa, who came over and said that she liked the podcast. Hi, Vanessa, nice to oh, meet you. Vanessa. Um, I felt very famous <laughs> being recognised in public. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, oh yes, and at the conference, her daughter was talking about being her daughter, um, and Blacklisted, which is another literary podcast we had done an episode on her recently and these things came together to make me think oh I should read something by her and then discovered that I owned a book by her so I read that <laughs> which is um, Hackenfeller's Ape which oh. is, it's about a professor studying 
the or trying to study the mating rituals of apes, but then changing to um, try and rescue this particular ape from being sent up in a in a space rocket, <laughs> so, which is a bizarre plot, but it's really really good. She writes really well. It's quite somehow quite light and witty dialogue at the same time as quite philosophical themes and things. Really liked him. Interesting. And it was okay. only 110 pages or something, so even better. <laughs> Always good. Um, what are you reading? Well, obviously, I've I've just had to rocket my way through both of these E.H. Youngs in oh, yeah. time for the podcast, which I, I felt I did quite well at doing. Strong work. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah so I enjoyed those. And I'm now about 100 pages into The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert, which my friend at work lent me. Um she said I could, she couldn't get into it, but she's like, it's about Victorians and, and about plants. I think you'll like it. I'll, like, I'll take it. <laughs> Noted um, Victorian phoenix. Rachel yeah. was on, <laughs> on the case. <laughs> um, you rock me. <laughs> My specialism comes in useful from time to time. Um, it and it's very good. Yes, it does. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, good. Um, so, what, what's her famous one? Um, Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, that's her. I guess I knew I knew the yeah. name. Yeah, so obviously quite a departure from previous form. Um, but, I mean, I haven't read Eat, Pray, Love, but I know what it's about. And this is this is uh, purely fictional, so it's, um, yeah, it's really good. It's set in the, it's not technically set in the Victorian period. It's the um, Regency, if we're being specific, but it's in America anyway. So it's good. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, yes, first topic. Thanks very much to Imogen for suggesting this one. Mm-hmm. We're um, so grateful for suggestions, really. <laughs> particularly as we were arranging the time to do this and then realised we didn't actually have a topic <laughs> to discuss. <laughs> so to the spreadsheet. <laughs> um, but it is, a, I find this sort of question so fascinating. I love hearing how people organise their books. Um, mm. And I, <laughs> it's such a geeky thing to say, but I mean, obviously, you know, <laughs> we are book geeks, so that's fine. Um <laughs> Yeah, because there's, we, we've said alphabetical or thematic, but I guess there are any number of options. But um, well, I'm yes. intrigued to hear how you do it now, Rachel, or maybe if it's changed over time. Well, um, I mean, at the moment, I don't actually have any organisation whatsoever. Um, oh, wow. This is largely because I live in a rented flat and I was very, one of the main reasons why I, I chose to rent this flat was because there was already a bookcase here. Um <laughs> which I'm sure many other bookish people can relate to. And um, so I'm actually restricted by the size of the shelves. So I can't, I realised when I moved in and I wanted to organise my books that some of the shelves I can't move and they're too short for some of my books. So I couldn't, um, I couldn't alphabetise them. So I just had to kind of shove them in where they fitted, basically. (laughs) I know, it's all a bit upsetting. I mean, obviously, we have a running joke in this house with my flatmate who, um, she is not a reader, and um, she won't mind me saying that. She likes to read, dip in and out, but not very much. But um, she can take a book from the bookshelf and, um, you know, go, they're all mine, and go into her room with it or something, and I'll walk into the into the lounge, and then within about thirty seconds, despite the fact that my books aren't organised, I'll say, "Have you taken one of uh, Have you taken the book off the second shelf towards the end?" <laughs> and I'll know exactly what book she's taken because even though there's no organisation, they're like my children. I know where they all are at any given time. Um, <laughs> so that's um, even though they're not organised, I know where I can find everything. 
and I move them around quite a lot. I've tried to group authors together where I can, but I can't always do that because of the book heights, as I say. Um, and I have recently bought a new bookcase um, that I painted yellow. It looks very nice. Um, yeah, that's got all my Victorian-related books in, which has cleared some space off of the main bookshelf. But I've also got loads of books that my parents... So at my parents' house, this is very rambly as always, <laughs> at, my, at my parents I have um, alphabetised my books, um, but by theme. Okay. So I've got both going on here. So well, I've got one book shape, bookcase for mid-century, and then I've got another book bookcase for modern and um, non-fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your mention of just being put anywhere reminds me of reading uh, Susan Hill's Howard's Ends on the Landing, where she talked about mm-hmm. how there was no organisation to her books, and I believe at that time her husband's books, and it just sort of all pushed together anywhere in the house, and she must have had thousands and thousands of books in there. Um, but yeah, that I mean, she didn't seem to know where they all were, unlike you. <laughs> she, she was writing about how she would lose them for a long time in those shelves. Yeah, see, that would bother me. Yeah, I, um, I remember reading... Um, Jacques Bonnet, I think, um, for Phantom on the Bookshelf, or Phantom, something like that, um, a book I loved, which is about uh, what it's, or partly about what it's like to win tens of thousands of books. And he was saying that people like him in that in that situation just have to buy new copies of books they want to read because they know they'll never find them on their own shelves, <laughs> which <laughs> which is, is, is certainly a good um, reason for having a, a, a proper order. But if you've got a manageable amount, then, then I suppose it works. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I think it's important to have order because especially when it's not just you who's reading the books, I think it's nice for people to be able to just find them easily and also like to browse and find connections. So that's why I like putting things thematically because once I finish, so say for example, I've decided I want to read about the Russian Revolution, then I pick up a book on it and then I put it back on the shelf and then once I finish and as I put it back, I'm like, oh, look at all these other books I've never read about Russia. What one should I read next? And they're right there in front of me. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, like you, a lot of my books are at my parents' house um, for the time being, and they're all alphabetical, mostly so that when I send an email, I'll be like, Mum, Dad, can you post <laughs> me such and such? Then they can find <laughs> it. Um, as was the case the other day with with uh, Aretha Bruce's playlist for Taylor, which I just read, which I wanted to read for the conference. I was like, it'll be under T or on the Virago bookcases. <laughs> 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 Although it turns out it's not a Virago, the edition I have, so it was under T. <laughs> um... <laughs> um but I'll, I'll give you a quick, since I'm sitting on my bed, I'll give you a quick um, tour of what I've got in my room in Oxford, um, if you would enjoy that. <laughs> so there's like, so. slightly uh, more, or slightly different organisation here. So I have, most of my fiction is alphabetical, but I have one shelf of pretty and one shelf of not so pretty. <laughs> or sorry, one bookcase right. rather. So basically it's a sort of a time thing. So old old hardbacks are all on one bookcase and modern paperbacks and modern hardbacks uh, on a separate bookcase. And they're all alphabetical by author. Then I have biography, alphabetical by subject. Then I have a separate shelf for A.A. Milne, it seems. Didn't know that. I'd forgotten that was there. <laughs> um, <laughs> then a separate shelf, for Elizabeth von Arnhem and a pile of books waiting to be reviewed. And then I, at the top of that bookcase, I have my must-read-soon shelf, and there's nothing that guarantees that I'm less likely to read a book than putting it on the must-read-soon <laughs> shelf. <laughs> they're, they're getting dusty there. <laughs> um, I've got several shelves where I have um, books that were relevant for my doctorate. That's They've not been moved since I finished my default, so they're still there. <laughs> but it's quite nice having them all together, because it feels like I can go and dip into the most essential books there. 
Um, then I've got a shelf of books about books and books about reading. Then all my Stephanie's are together. And then finally, there is a bookcase of review, uh, books that I have uh, review copies and misc. <laughs> <Seems underneath them. laughs> I can't work out what they've got in common other than the fact they don't fit anywhere else. <laughs> Wasn't that enlightening? <laughs> it's very enlightening. It sounds like you've managed to squeeze a lot of books into one room. I do have one, two, three, f- four full-size bookcases and another three book areas, I guess is the kind of thing to say. Would they really be called piles? <laughs> well, they're horizontal rather than vertical. There's certainly quite a lot of books on the floor as well. And then and a lot of my bedside table and on... Every surface, in fact, <laughs> and a lot piled on top of the wardrobe that I've read and I'm waiting to go somewhere else. Basically, yeah, I've got, I've got more box. books than space. Yes. Yeah, well, haven't we all? I mean, that's the problem. And I think certainly for for folk like us who are renting as well, it's um, I move a lot. You don't really, well, no, you don't. Well, you haven't moved an awful lot. Actually. Not a lot. I used to move every couple, every one or two years. But I've been here for four years now. Yeah, it's quite nice. Well, this is, you know, I'm entering my third year in this flat now, which you know feels very permanent. Oh, um, other one, haven't you been evicted? <laughs> <laughs> Victor yet. great um and so i've got a sort of situation where i feel like i can buy books and amass more books but the thing is i don't want to buy a new bookcase to put them in um because i don't really have anywhere to put it and i feel a bit bad because you know my fat mate's not a reader so i can't i'm literally all the furniture in our lounge is mine <laughs> like oh do you mind can i just put my piano over here and my desk and, and my bookcase and oh look i've got another bookcase um so she doesn't like you know. she just like keeping herself in the shower or something <laughs> <laughs> She is very accommodating. <laughs> very tolerant. Um, yeah, she's lovely. Um, so I, I, I just feel like I can't kind of go crazy. I would love to have all my books together. I would love to be able to bring all my books for my parents and, and have them all together. And if I did have them all together, my dream organisation system would be alphabetical, thematic, um, fiction, non-fiction, but fiction separated into modern classics mid-century and then you know being able to kind of hone in on exactly which type of reading I want to do mm, and find authors mm. there and have all of my non-fiction organized by sort of country and topic and things like that and I just think that would be wonderful like a real library it'd be great wouldn't it um yeah. w- would you keep biographies separate or would you have them with the authors if, if it was literary biography with the author's novels Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I think, actually, mm, I've done that before where I've put them next to them. And then I think it just makes me feel guilty every time I go to get the books. I've never read the biography. Because <laughs> um, I just, I really struggle with biographies to get into them. Because, you know, they're so long. And you think, oh, next, you know, that, that'll be a summer job. And then it never happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, I think I tend to keep them separately. But I have, like, a separate shelf for literary biographies and then one for um biographies like historical biographies or what have you mm. scientific whatever it is that i'm currently into um i'm pretty sure i only have literary biographies <laughs> <laughs> with like two others um i am hoping to have all my books with me by the end of the year in mm. in, in that Yes, hoping to have moved out of this place into my own place. Fingers crossed, who knows. But if it happens, <laughs> I, I will um, cautiously say that. If it happens, I will have 
all my books with me and I yes I've basically not been thinking about any of the practicalities about you know commuting or you know decorating just thinking how will I arrange my books when I've got them all <laughs> and um, well, that's the most important thing frankly well it is it absolutely is um and back in my very early days of book collecting I did just have them not any old house I had the same authors and things together but I used to just put them in different places and because I only at that point maybe had 300 books it was very easy to remember where they all were now with about 3,000 I would like to like you described sort of have that library that's thematic and you and and one thing leads to another and all that sort of thing um rather than just a sort of strictly impersonally alphabetical. But I then partly wonder, would I lose things? Then partly wonder, um, what about all the things where it's like, well, this would go great with these or this author because, I don't know, they're in the Boons group, but it's also should go here because it's my art collection, or it should go here because it's my, I don't know, London collection. Um, how do you decide? How, how Also, do you, have to just, do, you have, do you just have to buy various <laughs> duplicate copies to, to <laughs> satisfy <laughs> the um, yeah, <laughs> different it's, it's areas of the because you want, I think it depends on how you want to approach it. Like, if you want your bookshelves to be a place of of discovery and excitement, then I suppose you can do them quite randomly like that. So, if you wanted to have Bloomsbury Group all together and you had you mixed your nonfiction and your fiction, you could. But then I did start doing that once, um, and after one of my many moves, I was like, oh, let's have a sort of refresh of the bookshelves. Um, but then I got unstuck where I had books that didn't fit into any particular category and then I thought well I don't know what to do with you and I can't just have three miscellaneous shelves (laughs) um so and also some stuff I've got you know some books could fit into two or three potential overarching categories and which one do you choose well exactly I mean Um, it's it's a minefield and then you have to throw in in the case the height of the book even more precisely as you were saying you know there's so many practical considerations at the moment, my biography shelves have a lot of books on their side because yeah. <laughs> obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but for some reason, biographies seem to be taller than most of the other books I have. Um, but yeah, I, st- I thought, uh, for all I had like a, a tall biography and a short biography shelf, but that just upset me too much. So they just throw it on the side instead. No, and I uh, don't like having to do that. No, I mean, wouldn't it just be nice to have endless space to be able to arrange them? Uh, you know, you could even put other things that aren't books on shelves. I'm always amazed when I go to someone's house and they put like a, you know, a vase or something on a shelf. <laughs> I don't understand how you've got space for something that isn't a book. No, there's no room for this. <laughs> well, what I would love is to be able to have um, hand-built bookcases that are built specifically for my book collection. Oh, yes. Yeah, that would be the dream, wouldn't it? And then they'd have to measure your books. And But something else that I feel that publishing companies could do to help us is to, you know, have a little bit more thought put into the size of books when they make them. Sometimes I go and I have a look at hardbacks and things. I'm like, seriously, this does not need to be 10 inches high, does it? No, exactly. And that's why it's nice for having, like, all my Persephone's together or all my Virago's together or something. You know they're all going to be the same size and look the same. Yes. Uniformity has got a lot to answer for. Although I used to have those my orange penguins together, and for some reason that didn't work. It just made me never want to read any of them. But... Yeah, I think I don't really like doing that because it feels a bit like they're they're there for show, and they're not there for show. They're there to be read. Oh, well said. Mm. Um, speaking of, there was a vogue a while ago. Maybe still be going on of people arranging their bookshelves by colour. Discuss. Yes, I, I, yes, I was going to mention that. Um, I think it looks very nice in. Like from a, if you walk into a room and you look at a bookshelf, you're like, oh wow, it's a rainbow in the corner. But, um, I think, yeah, it's a little bit, 
I don't know. I don't want to be horrible about it because I'm sure there are people listening who've done it. Um, but I, I think it's a bit affected. So I know, like Harriet or Harriet Devine, um, or have blogs called Harriet Devine. Um, she um, she did that, and she was, and she said she always knew everything was, and it looked nice. And because I think it, it can, I'm sure yeah. it does work. I, I tried to do it with one bookcase at the point that, that lots of people seem to be doing, which is around 2008, I guess. Um, and I discovered that almost all the books on it were sort of just like a dingy beige. <laughs> just, <laughs> just highlighted the fact that um, it wasn't really the rainbow. Because you always seen them have beautiful rainbow colours of like, you know, bright and exciting colours. And I think... Yeah, my books uh, where, just aren't yeah, like that. Yeah, how, how have they managed to get such a, a wide spread of colours? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think a lot of people... Um, those displays that you see online, a lot of those books were books that people weren't actually reading. They're just, you know, like you can call up certain bookshops and you can buy By the like yard, a, a foot of, yeah, yeah. Foot of books for decorate, decorative purposes. I think that's basically what that is. So whenever you see them in magazines and on Instagram or what have you, I always think they're not actually real people's books. Those are, are books that have been bought specifically to make a display out of. Um, I, I I did try it myself with a couple of shelves, but I found the same thing with you because I saw some people who had beautiful things. And I thought, oh wow, you know, my bookcase is going to look amazing. And then I tried to do it, and I was like, oh no, my bookcase is just basically orange, brown, and then there's like a little <laughs> bit of blue. Um, it doesn't really work. So um, it's because a lot of I've got a lot of old hardbacks that don't have dust jackets and things, so they yeah. are all just basically the same colour. Yeah, they sort of went for a blue or a red most of the time, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Thrilling <laughs> rainbow. So I, I think, I'm sure, with people who've got real living book collections that have got lovely bright colours, it looks fantastic in a room. And if those books are, if, if you're reading the books and you're also using them as decoration, fabulous. But I don't like it when people do do it, just like when people buy orange penguins by the yard and, and just mm, put a shelf mm. of them up. I'm like, I'm sorry, but books are not just for decoration. It's like when people rip up old books and use the pages as wallpaper. I'm sorry, but someone might have wanted to read that. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah. There's, a cha- there's a charity shop in, in Evesham, um, where I went to school, that um, had their, their books arranged by colour. I was thinking, oh. like, it's, 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 you know, sure, if it's your own collection, but if you're going into a charity shop, you're going to think, oh, what I really fancy today is, like, a plum book. If you got, like, <laughs> a, like, it was really annoying because it was really hard to browse. You to, because, yes, no, that yeah, is annoying. I definitely I, think alphabetical for shops. Is, yes, <laughs> for shops is, is necessary. But I do think there's something in, in that. I mean, if, I think this would only work, though, if books were actually colour-coded in terms of, of how they made you feel, because it would be quite interesting to say, oh, I'm, I'm angry today, I'll get a red book or something. Mm. Um, and if, if you could kind of emotionally attach to a book's colour in, in that way, that would be quite an interesting way to read. But then, obviously, the cover the colour of the cover is not necessarily indicative of the emotive content, so... Sadly not. It wouldn't no. be easier but if, if it were. if it were, you know, that, would be, that would be an amazing way to read. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I guess like uh, my ideal is a mixture of these two. But mm. but if I had to pick one, I would. Um, I think I would really like the idea of just. Uh, I don't know how you how how you could be just thematic because you would need some sort of order within the themes, I guess. But. Um, that does feel more like you, like a personal library, one you're already at home with. That if, if you if you know it well enough and know your interests well enough to be able to arrange things by theme. Mm. Um, I went to get a book off my housemate's bookcase the other day. In, in fact, she didn't 
Ernie's in the end, she wasn't sure whether or not she did. And I just went in sort of assuming everything would be inevitable. Claudia was just, we came out and texted me like, what's with your books? What are they? And she's just like, sort of none. It's like, no. <laughs> so like, I'd be horrified at your bookcase. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've kind of forgotten that a lot of people just put books on shelves. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm limited. There is a thought process as far as I can have one, but yeah. it's just, you know, the, whoever fixed the bookshelf obviously didn't own books because the space between the shelves is ridiculous. I do find that we, well, most of mine are from Argos, which for international listeners is sort of like a, a, a cheap department store, I guess. Um, and they. It's basically Walmart. Oh sure, okay. But without <laughs> uh, food. <laughs> yet. Um <laughs> But yeah, the, their standard ones don't come with you can't put the shelves at equal distances based on where the slots are to no. come in. You have to have one that's smaller than the others. Yeah, at least one's like, like a but why, Argos? Why? <laughs> no, I'll tell you why it is, because Please they do. think uh, I'll tell you I've come to this conclusion. They think that people don't use bookshelves. Bookshelves aren't used for books. They're also used for CDs and DVDs and stuff. So they always have a shelf that you can put random stuff on. No, I guess I want that. I want to be able to put just books on if I if I want to. Which okay. obviously I do want to. <laughs> I'm tired of. I'm the same as you. I go to people's houses and I'm like, what is the point in having all these shelves when all you have on them is like a vase <laughs> and those pull out boxes filled with kids' toys. We need a change.org petition. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Bookshelves are for books, people. Yes. <laughs> I'm looking around and, and I have one bookcase shelf that has board games on and then the rest, all books. And then, obviously, books and things that are not bookshelves or <laughs> books everywhere. Uh, yeah, there are just... I mean, I've got half a shelf that has got crockery on it out of necessity because a man designed my kitchen and there are no cupboards um but there is i mean i'm just it's it's actually true my landlord is a man um <laughs> i believe you <laughs> yeah and sees no problem with the fact that there's literally one covered um and so i have to keep some of my crockery on there but otherwise i mean i'm annoyed about it because i really could use that extra half a shelf but um yeah mm. no I, I i don't know why i wouldn't have you consider have keeping your crockery in a bag hanging on the back of a door <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just having that have books and just hang them in bags and <laughs> Simon I've got horrible images stop it <laughs> <laughs> it's like camera's bag hanging from the lamp <laughs> oh dear well it may come to that yeah. <laughs> I may have grossly overestimated the space that I'll have in the, in the place I'm moving to to fit all my books <laughs> Well, you know, I've already decided I'm going to come round and help you cull. <laughs> I have set the idea of 200 to get rid of. I think I said before, maybe, but so far I'm on 27. So <laughs> I think you might need some help. But my beautiful works. Simon, you have so many duplicates. You know you do. I don't anymore. I mean, I do a few, but not many. <laughs> Stop lying. <laughs> Oh dear. I have stopped buying duplicates. That's that's something, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and indeed, I've only bought 12 books so far this year. Yes, all right. Well, the least said about that, the better <laughs> I'm concerned. Just saying that Thomas has keep their promises. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a childhood motto that sadly we didn't have, but, but if I ever have children, they will certainly be um, learning that motto. <laughs> okay. That's a very nice one. <laughs> we just had Thomas's Don't Cheat, which doesn't rhyme at all. 
for Tom Sinfanchi at Project 24 or anything else. <laughs> I'm absolutely confident that none of the rest of my family have bought more than 24 books this year, but that is true <laughs> of every year, I should imagine. <laughs> it's just you, he's addicted. Yeah. My brother's probably bought more than 24 DVDs, though, so, you know. I don't think anyone bought DVDs anymore. He's he's keeping that industry alive. Good for him. Um, yeah. When, when, well, in a hundred years, my books will all still work. I can't imagine DVDs will. So. Well, this is the thing. Books are a timeless investment. Yeah, they are an investment. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I get much money back when I call and just give everything to a charity shop. <laughs> but someone is. So. Well, you're giving back to the earth. Well, exactly. More specifically, to Bernardo's. <laughs> <laughs> Who email you and tell you how much money they've raised based on your stuff. Oh, really? It's always, always dispiritingly little. <laughs> That's quite nice, though. But it's it? quite nice. Like, we've got another three pound and six pence. It's like, oh, great, thanks. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, so, so we said that. That's possibly not a topic. So let's, um, yeah. so obviously I think we're going to, we we'll go with a mix. But if you had to pick one out of alphabetical and thematic, what would you go for? <sighs> I think I'd have to go for alphabetical just because thinking about other people accessing your books. If it, if nobody else ever used my books, I would go for thematic. But if but in in case of other people wanting to, I'd have to say alphabetical. And I'm going to be ruthlessly selfish <laughs> and say even if people are accessing them, they can just get used to the themes. I'm going to go with them. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Simon. <laughs> Uh, thanks very much, Imogen, for suggesting the topic. I think yes. you probably suggested it slightly less of a rigorous dichotomy than that, but, you know, we like to put things into rigorous dichotomies. So. Yeah. Um, yes, thanks. And in fact, Imogen sent a few suggestions, so we may come on to others in future episodes. Mm. Um, for the second half of the episode, this, this stems from being the, together with Jenny in a charity shop in... Um, What's it called? Hampstead. Hampstead. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, uh, and aspiring to E.H. Young novels and assuring Rachel that she loved them, we should definitely get them and read them. We'll see how that went in a minute. But, um, <laughs> the books were Miss Mole and Chesterton Square. Um, pick one that you'd like to introduce and I'll be the other. Um, I'll introduce Chesterton Square if that's all right. Sure. Okay, so Chaston Square is set in a town called Radstow, which is really Bristol in the west of England. Um, and it centres around two families who live next door to each other in a shabbily genteel uh, Georgian <laughs> Square in the just just before um, World War Two. So it's about I think I'm judging it to be about 1938. Um, and it is, there are two families that we see. So we've got the Frasers, who is, uh, Mrs. Fraser and her five children and also her, um, her, her five children are sort of grown up children and also, um, her spinster friend who lives with them, Spanner, wonderful name. <laughs> and, um, then across next to them, there are the Blackets and Mr. Blackett is, uh, a kind of a businessman and his wife and they've got three daughters and Mr. Blackett hates Mrs. Fraser um, for various reasons. He's a very interesting character um, and it, the book is basically all about the relationships between these families, how they come together and um, how they kind of learn more about each other as the novel goes on and about themselves 
and not an awful lot it's one of those books where not an awful lot happens but a lot does happen emotionally mm-hmm. and it's yeah it's a very very um interesting book about human nature and it's also very interesting because it's set during um that period of time when nobody knew if there was going to be a war or not so the uncertainty there is really interesting yeah definitely Thank you. Um, so, uh, Miss Mole is, so that book was published in 1947. Miss Mole's quite a lot earlier. It's published in 1930. Um, and the titular Miss Mole is, um, 40 something, uh, housekeeper or looking for work as a housekeeper. Um, she's, she's got a cousin called Lilla? Lila? I'm not sure how you pronounce L-I-L-L-A. Lilla, I think, yeah. Um, who is sort of from the better side of the family and is quite embarrassed by, Miss Mole, who is sort of um, mischievous and lively and um, not entirely respectable, I guess. Um, and she she manages to embarrass her cousin, Lilla, into getting her a position with a nonconformist minister called Robert Corder and his daughters, Ethel um, and Ruth, and their cousin, Wilfred. Um, and she... Um, the work, it's been a while since I read it, so I don't know why I volunteered to add them, because I don't remember that much about what happened. But I do recall that she sort of puts on this guise of being like a sort of doleful, dutiful housekeeper and keeping her mischievous, um, life sort of to herself. And it's sort of like a, sort of like a fairy tale, like in some ways, I guess there's, there's lots of, ver- she sort of solves various problems for the family, but mm. not in a particularly, um, sentimental ways so and, th- and there are moments of, of pathos in it um particularly around miss Mole's visions for her own future um we're probably coming to talk a bit later i guess about um similarities between various characters but i think it's interesting how character miss mole and one of the characters in chatton square both live this sort of disguised life um mm. as a way of survival i guess but we'll come on to that later so yes uh, it's also set in um the same area that chatton square is set which is, as I say, Bristol, it's specifically Clifton in Bristol, which is the yeah. very, very pretty old, posh, <laughs> certainly now posh, I think even then quite posh, um, section of Bristol. Um, in fact, I was going to ask, uh, with your, I don't know what edition of Chatham Square you read, I can't remember what it was, but um, did yours have the end papers with the little map? No, I've got um, another, I've got like a book society copy of it, but I, I am thinking about getting a nicer edition because I liked oh, it so much. So, yeah. So yes, my copy had, I think, I can't remember which edition it was, but it, um, the end papers had a little, some of they sketched out Chadden Square and the, most particularly the two houses, which are uh, um, perpendicular to each other at a corner of the square. And they've got all the details exactly right from how it's described. And that really, that was quite fun sort of seeing how you could picture them living those lives in there. Yeah. So when I suggested these to you, I said, I think you'll really like her. I think you'll like one of them more. And I think it's the one that I don't like as much. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and I haven't heard what you thought about Shadow's Grotto then, but whilst, whilst you were reading Miss Mole, you were a little uncertain about it. Yes. I found it quite difficult to get, in, to get into at first. Um, I find E.H. Young's writing style more so in Miss Mole than in Chatterton Square, which might be because Miss Mole's an earlier novel. I found it quite um, obtuse. Okay. And um, there were times when people were talking and I didn't understand what they were talking about. And I think like the conversation that Miss Mole has with Lilla and things, there's there's kind of an implied knowledge going on between the two of them that obviously the reader doesn't have because we don't know their past and a lot of the conversation it reminded me a little bit actually of um oh ivy compton burnett 
Oh, yeah. I like, it's, it's your go-to for books you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> you compare them to her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's that kind of sense of being an observer in a place where you don't have all of the information that you need to understand what's happening. And I felt like that for the first few chapters. But then as I got into it and I kind of familiarised myself with her writing style, um, I felt much more comfortable with it and I began to enjoy it much more. Um, and I thought, I was like, oh, this is going to be one of Simon's whimsical spinster novels where it turns <laughs> out that, you know, she's a witch halfway through or something. Um, <laughs> but no, it doesn't. And I thought actually towards the end, it becomes a much more... Um, more sentimental and slightly more um not dark but kind of realistic novel about the Mm. difficulties of being Miss Marvel you know she's in her late 30s she's on her own and while at the beginning she's all you know I'm an independent woman I you know she always presents this very positive outlook on her life you know she takes everything um you know, in her stride and she sees the positive of everything and she's got all these resourceful, she's got this great resourcefulness and uh, such a fantastic imagination. But actually, as the novel progresses, she has these moments where this kind of the veil is lifted and, and she for a moment glimpses this darkness of, of her future of a time when she will no longer be useful, when she will no longer be able to find a job. And there's this sort of that mystery of who's renting her cottage and why isn't she getting any money from it? And um, yes, I've forgotten about that. Yes, yeah. and it's so it actually becomes a very moving um, portrayal of somebody who really at the time was on on the outskirts of life, looking into other people's, and she's always this outsider. Um, and really, there was this wonderful passage, and I wish I'd marked it now because I won't be able to find it, but um, where she said something about being torn between wanting her independence and wanting marriage and children and I just it really Mm -hmm. resonated with me and I thought that's such a perfect way of describing what it is to be a woman a lot of the time that idea of conflict between what your heart wants but at the same time what your head head wants and it's it was yeah I just I found it actually by the end I found it really really good and I I loved the ending I don't see what happens but I just thought yeah I mean it's it's kind of a bit of a curate's egg of a book I think um, in fact, can I just read a, a paragraph that I put in my re- review when I reviewed it a few years yeah. ago, um, which, which relates to some of that, um, which I thought was really sort of the, the nub of understanding the, the dark side, or not the dark side, but, you know, the poignancy of the character, um, um, which is, who goes, um, they, this is about the family that she's housekeeping for. They were all too young or too self-absorbed to understand that her life was as important to her as theirs to them and had the mm-hmm. same possibilities of adventure and romance that with her... To accept the present as the pattern of the future would have been to die. I thought, yeah, yeah, really, and I think it's what she handles really well in that novel is having this character who's sort of irrepressible and teases everyone, and is is very. I found it just really fun to read about, and I loved her dialogue particularly, um, but and also that poignancy. Um, and something I guess that quite a lot of novels at that time were doing. They sort of. Ian Delafield does it all the time, and Rachel Crompton was doing, this reminded me quite a lot of Rachel Crompton's novels, particularly Matty and the Daring Roads, but, um, yeah, have, mixing that humour with a sort of, um, yeah, pathos mm. at times. Um, um, what you said about the prose, I, I do agree with to an extent. Um, I particularly felt with that one more of, than the other ones I've read by her that the prose maybe slightly dragged at times, um, mm. and what, and was maybe a bit, 
obfuscatory, I guess. But um, but what I thought was a strength in that one, which I haven't seen as much in Chatham Square, was the the dialogue, which is really witty and really. Um, I love how she conveys things through dialogue and the way that she set, builds up scenes through through dialogue. I, did, I always just really love authors who can convey what. This is why I love *Ivy Contemporary*. <laughs> convey this, the gist of a scene almost entirely through dialogue. And with mm. Young, perhaps in particularly Miss Mole, it feels like the dialogue is setting up one scene, and the prose is tonally quite different and adding a maybe a different, a different text to the scene. And, and they sometimes compete, and sometimes it works well. Adding those two different um, angles to it. I don't know if you felt that reading it. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I really liked the dialogue and I particularly liked also the dialogue between, um, who's the, Ruth and, and Hannah and also like Ethel, you know, she comes in and she slams everything around and, oh, Ethel was you great, know, yeah. <laughs> Ethel, and Ethel and Ruth have these wonderful exchanges where, you know, it's very much, I mean, having a sister myself, like those exchanges <laughs> you do have with your sister of you know like you don't understand and um and then knowing predicting what the other is going to what the other's response is going to be and that sensitivity within the family and the tension between the family when they come in the room and the way they mm-hmm. each other and the conversations they have she does those set pieces really well um and yes i think i really enjoyed the dialogue and the way that miss mole comes to life is through her dialogue you get a sense of her personality very much through what she yeah, says yeah. And how she says it um and i think she's She's a really interesting character in, in that she feels a bit like, you know, Mary Poppins in some ways. That she sort of parachutes herself into these situations. But at the same time, she's very much a person in her own right. And I like I love that passage that you picked out, that bit where, you know, to everyone else, she's invisible. But to herself, she's utterly vibrant and important. And mm-hmm. that idea of also being overlooked as you get older and how you know everyone who's the kids at school are the same with me you know they think I'm impossibly old it's like well thanks a lot you know but to someone who's 16 or 17 someone who is oh anything older than 30 they're ancient and (laughs) that idea that she's kind of ceased to exist and have possibilities and what's interesting with novels from that period is the way they depict women you know when I first started reading it I was thinking she must be in her 60s or something and then you find out that she's not even 40 yet oh was she not 40? I thought she was 40 something is she not no she's not even 40 wow gosh (laughs) and it's but it's like very much this oh you know this attitude of her time's over she's lost her chances she's got no future and and that yeah, attitude yeah. Is, is really interesting to think that in the 1930s that's what life was you know goodness life's over by the time yeah. and there's some like not in tone but in 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 approach uh, i guess there's or in plot there's some similarities miss Pettigrew lives for a day by winifred mm. watson as well um dealt with quite differently but um yes. so that's it's that sort of that sort of figure isn't it yeah absolutely um Let's talk about Chatterton Square. So, yeah, um, I think it's a much more sophisticated novel in some ways. I guess it's oh, not yeah. got, this, yeah, it's um, it's not got the same lightness in any of it. Really, there is there is some humour in it. And she writes quite witty sentences, but in general, it's quite dark. Book I found partly the impending war, as you say, mm. part, but I think mostly because of Mister Blackett and his. This is a very realistic depiction of of a husband and father who was a monster, but not, you know, violent or dom- 
Well, he's 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 domineering only basically because he's so ruthlessly selfish, um, and just expects everyone to put his needs before before their own. Um, and I thought because he's not like an ogre, it was all the more difficult to read about how he basically blighted the life of his wife and at least one of his daughters. Mm. I mean, uh, I thought he was a wonderful piece of characterization, absolutely mm. brilliant. I mean, he's the most odious person I've come across recently in fiction. He's a bit of a Mr. Collins, but even worse. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he, his self-delusion, his inability to see how ridiculous he is to others, it was just excruciating to read, but like very pleasurable at the same time. And I loved how his wife, his perception of his wife is gradually shown to be incorrect as we're given more of an awareness of her and her internal feelings and her perspective of him um and i thought their relationship and her um what would i say i wouldn't call it well it's not really um an awakening because she's always always had it but her, her from her ability to finally push for what she wants um mm-hmm. is fantastic and there's this wonderful bit um towards the end of the novel where mr blackett is determined to take i mean he's it's he keeps insisting there's not going to be a war that it's that it's not going to happen at all which obviously from our perspective is ridiculous and everyone and he insists that he's going to take the family away to the continent for a holiday and everyone's like oh are you sure about this because you know <laughs> do we really want to be in france um and he insists on going with his eldest daughter and his wife is just the joy of having two weeks to herself is it was just like i just was stunned by how it was astonishing wasn't it like it and, and young somehow manages to make the novelist feel so much lighter at that point as well i didn't yes. know how, how it went, but you do you as a reader you feel like a sense of relief that he's yeah. not there it's like this whole weight has been lifted from the family and finally she can do what she wants but she's only literally got two weeks and she so they've basically got one daughter each as it were like one who's yeah. gradually realizing she notices that her mother is giving her father those sort of like you know narrowed eyes or like looking furious of hatred at him and it's like yeah. well maybe maybe she also can't stand him <laughs> and the other the other daughter's turning into father there's a third daughter who doesn't really do anything yeah <laughs> um could probably have been dispensed with <laughs> <laughs> um and i think i mean coming from a family where everyone gets on with each other or you know much more amicable it still is interesting that i'm much more like my mom and my brother is much more like my dad and it's you know interesting how that happens in families and like thankfully it works well in our family everyone's just very happy with it rather than like going along dividing lines but um i thought it was interesting to see how that, that must happen in in some families where there is enmity between parents that children consciously or unconsciously choose a side yeah and it was really interesting how mr blackett thought of himself as having this perfect family when actually the mm-hmm. fact the fractures within it were really obvious to see to anyone else and the way that he's kind of poisoned everybody and I just the thing that upset me the most when I was reading it is how Mrs Blackett is there's this passage where she says every morning she's forced the indignity of having to climb over her own husband to get out of bed because he insists on having the bed pushed up against the wall because that's how where he likes to have it. And that was and, such a good detail. Like he, yeah. he wants against the wall. He's not willing to sleep against the wall. Mm. Um, yeah, and that, that just sums him up, really, doesn't it? Like it yeah. must be the way he wants it. Other people's concerns aren't, aren't of interest to him. He just expects people to get on with it. 
Yeah, he was disgusting. And Mrs. Fraser, I thought, was wonderful. So what's really interesting about her is that initially everyone thinks that she's a widow, but she's not. Her husband has left her and he's gone to live in France. Um, and she's a wonderful character in that she's got she loves her husband still, but she also recognises that she no longer can be with him. Mm. And her ability to love and let go of people and her self-awareness and her awareness of her children and her love for her children and the freedom that they have in their household compared to the Blackets is really interesting. And about how the Blackets, like Rhoda and um, Mrs. Blackett, are just irresistibly drawn into the Fraser's house because that's the kind of life that they long for and they can't have. And you see that real contrast between... Both of them are living free lives. You know, they're free to live where they like. They both have money. And in fact, well, the Blackets have more money than the Frasers. But that idea of emotional freedom is mm-hmm. is really pulled out by the contrast between those two houses. And, it's, yeah, I mean, I just think it was a fantastic display of how different life can be. Yeah, and I think it's uh, Mr. Blackett's obsession with respectability yes. um, is what, um, and sort of, he'd say in his mind, his family is respectable, the phrases aren't respectable, and that's yeah. the beginning. And I, I love how she took what, you know, that's a particularly mid-war, middle-class obsession with respectability, to an extent still today, I guess, um, and then looked behind the facade to see what actually mm. is going on. Um, and there's a sort of intermingling between the children of the, of the different families as well, which um, suggests that things might change, but also... The, the yeah the freedom or lack of freedom is passed down but oh, I thought it was really interesting actually in the Fraser house you mentioned Miss Fenner earlier mm. I thought that was a really interesting um, really well drawn dynamic between this unmarried woman who is very intellectual um, really you know loves being allowed to be in that household but also knows that she's not in the family and the fragility of yeah. her position there um, how she can't quite bring herself to talk about it to Mrs Fraser in the way that she might what she's thinking um, that she'd like to. I thought that was a really nuanced portrait of what that sort of friendship must have been like. Yeah, absolutely. She's utterly dependent on her for her life, but Mrs. Fraser never makes her feel that way, which I think is wonderful. She's quite a Miss Mole-like. I thought Miss Spanner was very similar to Miss Mole in many ways. Yeah, I think maybe slightly more anxious, perhaps, at times. Um, Or at least more on the the surface, admitting to her anxiety, perhaps. Mm. It was interesting that obviously E.H. Young found that kind of role of of the spinster and and where does the spinster belong to be quite interesting because she's put it in quite a few. I mean, I haven't read any of her other books, but I know from knowing briefly what some of the others are about, that that is something that does interest her quite a lot. Um, Yeah, and I think in in her own life, she... Lived in a slightly bizarre menage a trois with a, she a did. doctor and his wife, didn't she? Yes, with the head of uh, Alain's school in Dulwich. Oh, a teacher, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so she yeah. was obviously a very unconventional person, which is, you know, which I think shows forth in her very liberal um, views on things, which you can tell from her books. I mean, I can t- I thought oh, I really would have loved to have met her from the very wise and sensitive things that she says. Yeah, my favourite of her books is actually one we haven't done, which is, um, I've only read, only read four, but my favourite of those is uh, William, ah. which is um, all about a, William is the father of very, I can't remember how many children, but quite a few, um, <laughs> and one of, the, <laughs> yeah, one of the daughters um, commits adultery, and it's sort of about the reactions to that from the variously conservative and non-conservative family members. Um 
whether or not they want to, you know, exile or something. But it's very, it's not, it's not quite as um, open-minded a novel as it thinks it is, because basically anyone who, who's not, who's against adultery is, is is a cad and just a terrible person. It's like, well, it was okay <laughs> to not be pro-adultery, probably, but um, but yeah, it's it's a really um, well-written, interesting novel. Great characters, um, great, really well-drawn characters, um, and I think just a really in, intriguing moral quandary, moral issue. Where, whereas these novels, I guess, are more about cast of characters and seeing what happens to them rather than like a central catalyst issue, maybe. Unless the war is a catalyst issue, I guess, or the the coming. Yeah, war. the war is. Yeah, the war is very interesting, and the way that the characters feel about. It's really poignant as well. Bear in mind that Mrs. Fraser has three sons, and mm-hmm. um, there's another character in the novel who's been through World War One already and has been very badly injured by it. And yeah, it, it is very interesting. And I thought I haven't actually read many books that were written during that period, and I found that element of it really interesting. So yeah, so as I say, it was published yeah. in 1947. I assume it was being written. I don't know, before that, obviously. Um, I read yeah. it for the 1947 club that Karen and I did, where we got everyone to read books from 1947. Um, and yeah, obviously, the war was still huge in people's minds at that time, um, and it just came up time and time again. Mm. Um, and I think it's interesting writing something at that point set before the war, because you, it means you can have that sort of... It, you can mock this man for thinking the war won't come when every reader knows it is going to come. But also, it's sort of a, yeah. an antebellum look at a like a, a way of life, or a, I guess a sort of concentration on on class and things that had changed slightly or significantly, perhaps by 1947. Yeah, and I think that's something that she brings out really well is, is how obvious he's out, obviously outdated everything that he believes in is. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, he's, he's, he's quite... He didn't fight during the war. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's a, a sticking point. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. know how I feel, feel about, felt about the end, because you were saying how much you enjoyed Mrs. Blackett's um, sort of realisation. Mm. Um, I found... Uh, even though he's awful, it was quite... It was, I found it really difficult to read when she basically tells him how much she hates him. Just... Um, because he was a terrible person to live with, I, but almost like unknowingly terrible. Does that make sense? Like, he wasn't, he wasn't malicious, I guess. <laughs> he just sort of, he was just wrong about everything. <laughs> no, but I think from her perspective, there was no one to tell him. And yeah, true. I think actually he needed that. And I like the fact it's kind of left quite open. So you're like, oh, what what will happen? Is he going to realise? Is he not? You know, we don't know. And that's, I kind of liked the fact that I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, she certainly couldn't go on living the way she she was. No. I think it is. It's a, yeah, I don't want to call it domestic abuse because I don't think it falls into that category, but certainly a miserable, miserable marriage. Yeah. Um, a really interesting portrait of a, of a miserable marriage. Um Oh, and, and him keeping going back to their hunt, talking about their honeymoon and how much he obviously thought that was like a beautiful time in their lives and how much he hated it. <laughs> it yeah. Was, yeah, really, really, yeah, quite difficult to read at times. Mm, it was, and I think it it was certainly a much, a very different reading experience to Miss Mel, but still very much by the same author. Yeah, the, you could see that definitely this, 
in the pros saying, but I think of the four I read, they probably are the tonally the most different. The fourth one is the Mrs. Mallet, which is quite an early one, I think, uh, which wasn't very good. <laughs> so I, I would have, I mean, it was okay, but yeah, certainly not as good as the other three um, that I've read. But I did, I think, correctly predict which one you would prefer. <laughs> mm. I did, whilst I was reading, I did think this is more of a Rachel sort of book. Yeah, and I knew that you would match with them as well. Yeah, so how well we know each other. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I do, I love both. But I think anything, anything with a <laughs> mischievous spinster, and I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's um, what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, I love this. <laughs> um, if you had to pick a, a reason why you prefer Chatterton Square, uh, what would you, if you had to like condense why you think it's a better book, or why you preferred it, what would you say? Um, hmm. I think I would say I preferred it because it offers a, a richer canvas in terms of it's got, you don't really have as much of a masculine perspective in Miss um, Mole. And I liked the fact that you saw the marriage between these, the blackets and you saw, um, so you had that kind of a male and female relationship and then you had two females in the other house and I liked that contrast and I just thought the depiction, I thought it was a much more realistic book and I enjoyed it for that. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I think I would probably say that Chadden Square is a better book but I still prefer Miss Mole. <laughs> so I'm just, yeah, a sucker for that sort of book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, it's, they're both lovely in their own way. I'm really glad that you ended up liking them. I was I was anxious when I got your first message about Miss Mole. Have, <laughs> have I got it so wrong? I thought I knew her, her taste worked pretty well by now. Um, so would you go and read more more about it, Young? Yeah, I would, and I'm actually I'm quite annoyed because I used to have quite a few of her books um, when I was collecting those of Viragos, and I got rid of them because I thought, oh, you know, you've had these for ten years and you haven't read them, so uh-huh. it's about time to go. And actually, they're quite hard to get hold of, so. Um, a sanitary lesson to you. I know it is, isn't it? <laughs> so I, I would actually, yes, I would be very interested in reading more and I'd be interested to hear if people have any particular recommendations because, as I say, mm, they're not yeah. always easy to get hold of, so I don't want to spend a lot of money on something that turns out to not be as good. So. Yeah, yes, please. So I th- um, recommendations would be good. I think, I think I have all of her books except for, I think there's one or two of her early ones that are, are extremely hard to get hold of, but I've certainly got all the ones Virago did, so... Um, I won't be able to read them straight away. Rachel, I'll <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so next episode, we are doing the, well, sort of the Catholic Chronicles versus um, the Forsyth Saga, but only the first book of each. Otherwise, yes. it'd be a lot of reading. So that's um, the first book of the Catholic Chronicles is called The Light Years, by Liz, and that's by Elizabeth Jane Howard. The first book of the Forsyth Saga is... A Man of Property, is that right? Yes, I think so. Yes, um, by John Goldsworthy. Um, yes, I keep forgetting the light years is called the light years. I just think of it as the Catholic book and then I have to look at the cover to remember what I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm most of the way through that. Um, Good. Yeah, so more on that next time. Yes, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Oh, and all the books and authors that we mentioned today are available at, oh, you can read list of them at stuckinabook.com should you have heard something in passing and desperate to go and read it. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.